0: That is time you are
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Cross Timber on this sunny February day, and we are thankful for the the sunshine and the the upcoming warm weather, and just with the joy of sunshine in your hearts, welcome you here to to worship together as we we join, and our hearts and voices together in song, and if you are visiting here this morning, we're glad to see you. If you're regular attenders, we're so glad you're You're back, and if you happen to be listening in online, we're thankful that um, you have that opportunity as well as we join together to lift up high the name of Jesus and celebrate the fact that we do truly serve a great and wonderful God. If you are visiting here this morning, we're we're so excited, and we would love to have (coughs) the opportunity to connect with you, and we have a little card in the bulletin that looks like this. It's a great way to share information, to ask questions, and if you're a member, if you have to update information, or if anybody needs to serve a share a prayer request, you can just jot that on the back of this card. And in a few minutes, we'll be passing our offering plate around, and you can put that in the offering plate, and it'll go to the office. Just please, if you do share um, a prayer request with us, let us know if it's okay to send that out over email. Um, we want to honor your privacy, and if you say no, we won't. and If you say yes, we'll rejoice in the fact that we can have several other folks joining in in prayer, because we truly believe that God works through prayer, and we want to partner with you as we're able. Um, I want to mention a few things um, this morning before we read from Psalm chapter 2. The first thing is to remind you, gentlemen, that the 14th of the month is coming up, uh, February, that is Valentine's Day. Um, That is the chance to buy candy, flowers, to cook a special meal, to show your wife, how special she is, but it's also the 14th of, month, of the month, the day that we set aside as a church to pray for revival and spiritual awakening um, in Johnson County. Um, there's probably upwards of 150,000 or more folks in Johnson County alone that, on any given Sunday have no affiliation with a church, and we pray that God would pour out His Spirit and move mightily in our midst starting here and then just echoing out all across our state and our nation. And if you follow the news or have read reports, you can see that God is working and the spirit of revival is is flowing in places. Um, There is an ongoing revival right now in Asbury College in Kentucky. Um, Just a little over 30 years ago in 1970, there was a revival there that extended for several days, and there's another one now. Students are gathering there in the chapel and, and not leaving. They're worshiping. Professors are releasing classes. God is is moving. There's times of, of confession and repentance as they they join together and just lifting up the name of of Jesus. And students are just proclaiming that it's Jesus that matters above all else. So we see those sides. We see the the young man Damar Hamlin who was um, you know miraculously you know saved from from death after a cardiac arrest during a football game, and he is proclaiming now that God is using him in a different way, that God is using his story of new life to share the good news. And then also, starting next week, um, Greg Laurie, partnering with the Irwin Brothers, um, has produced a new movie called The Jesus Revolution, about the Jesus movement of the early 1970s, which is the last great spiritual awakening that we've seen um, in the United States. I'm in with with that. You may have seen a large poster out there, and because of the generosity of the producers of the film, um, we have a large number of free tickets for a screening of that movie on February 22nd, which is next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. When I say a great number, um, we were We were blessed with a total of 75 tickets to utilize um, for our church. So if you are interested in going and maybe more excitedly taking someone who has questions about Jesus or is a lost person, there is a sign-up sheet on the table back there um, right in the middle. You can't miss it. If you just write your name on there, the best way to contact with you and the number of tickets that you hope to use. Um, We'll get those to you in the next week or so. Um, they've done screenings of the movie. Deborah and I have seen it um, ourselves. Um, it is very impactful, and I think it speaks as much to the church as it does to those who are lost. And in the early screenings, they found that um, the movie has been very impactful to those who are seeking spiritually and have um, spiritual questions. Um, I would just say this concerning the movie. Um, it does um, portray, portray drug use, so it's probably not the best for small um, children, but certainly for teenagers and adults and I guarantee you, if you are a longtime church member, it will um, it will move your heart in how we look at people and receive people um, as the body of Christ. So take advantage of that. It's free. Just sign up, put your name on there, and we'll get your tickets to you as well. And then a way we can serve in our community: Harvest House Collection Sunday is next Sunday. Um, there's several items that are necessary if you um, want to see those. are in the middle section of the bulletin, and just bring those next week. We'll pass them on to Harvest House, and also, if food's not your thing, Next Step Women's Center um, has experienced a large number of needs for diapers, especially during the ice storm, and so if they, um, if you can help out with a package of diapers any size, you can bring those here, too, and we'll pass those on to Next Step Women's Center. Um, for other things, you can consult the bulletin for dates. And time, just remember our regular activities of the week. Men's breakfast tomorrow at 6.30. Wednesday, Bible study at 11. Prayer at 6.30. And then everything else you can see in the bulletin. I'd like us to read Psalm chapter 2 this morning before our um, deacons come to receive our, our offering. In these 12 verses, we see the futility of, of human kingdoms and we see the greatness of the coming king and the kingdom Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. From his wrath, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Of Saturday, Father, as we gather here together today to worship you and give glory and honor to you, we want to say that we are extremely grateful and thankful for everything you do in this congregation. And today we pray that we pray that you bring your Holy Spirit down upon this congregation and move each and every one of us towards you closer. And Lord, we want to thank you for everything you do. And in doing so, today we want to give our test.
0: and sing with us this morning.
2: Is all creation groaning,
0: isn't
2: it? Is anyone the Father truly Is
0: a new song this morning to the congregation. This song is about trusting God, and it's about how He will never leave the circumstances. There's a place when the heart is inside. When I look at the space between where I used to be and this wreck regular-
1: a Bible there handy, you can start finding your way to the Old Testament book of Esther. If you're a little bit challenged in finding your Old Testament books, um, the easiest thing I could tell you to do is find Psalms and then back up. um, Go through the book of Job and right there before Job you'll find Esther. And if you run across Nehemiah, you're close but have been a little too far. So just turn somewhere there between... Nehemiah and Job, and you'll find this little book known as Esther. It's an exciting day. Not only is it the Super Bowl, for those of you that are football um, enthusiasts, but also we're going to start a a new series looking at the book of Esther around the idea that the ever-present hand of God is always at work around us. I think it's fitting that we sang the song, There or Another, in the fire, just to remind us that always, even though we may not see God at work, we may not hear God's voice, we can trust that He is always involved in the events of history. And today and next week, as we look at the first couple of chapters, um, I appreciate you um, your your patience and your prayers as we we launch into this. Um, Esther is a very challenging book. It's a new learning experience for me, and um, I feel um, feel very inadequate, but I trust in God's help um, as we look at this together and as we draw wonderful principles that tell us of the faithfulness of our our God. You don't have to look very far outside your own door to realize that the world around you oppo- opposes the things of God at every point. The people of God live in a world and struggle against a world that makes things difficult and challenging. Just this week alone, just in things that I've heard about personally, just locally in our community, there's, there's the prospect of, of gender-neutral restrooms in public schools, pressure for for students to participate in activities that they feel are inappropriate. Uh, A Christian businessman had to to take a stand regarding travel with a, a co-worker that would be of the opposite sex. And these examples are local and personal, but they are just a small tip of the iceberg, of the challenges that God's people face in a world that is increasingly hostile toward the things of God. And in the midst of this tension that we live in, this world that is full of sin and wickedness, and God's call to live as kingdom people, Christians often find themselves labeled as as different, weird, old-fashioned, and even in some contexts, dangerous people. However, in the midst of all of this trial, God has a plan and a purpose for His people. And this morning, as we look at the first chapter of the book of Esther, I want us to think about this, that God's people live as a purposeful minority in a world that appears to be all-powerful and continues to be enticing, that we can... Still be lights that shine in the darkness, witnesses of the good news, to be bold examples of faith like Daniel. We can find evidence of God's hand at work even in the ordinary, sometimes we would explain or think simple circumstances of life. And so, as We look at the book of Esther. We're going to investigate what most people call a a masterpiece of literature. It's a beautiful story not only of love and intrigue, plots that are discovered, and wicked people who are brought to justice, but overall, it's the story of a Jewish girl who becomes queen of. and has the opportunity to save her people from destruction. And in this story, you'll find times to worry. You'll find times to boo. And you find times to to cheer. You can read the whole book in the time it would take to read maybe a chapter or two of your, your favorite novel, but I would put these chapters up against any novel that you would read. And even though the name of God is not mentioned, every page of the Scripture there in Esther reveals that the ever-present hand of God is at work. I'd like us to read this chapter together. It's a, it's a bit lengthy, um, but it will set the, the story in our minds as we look at some principles today about the world that we live in and how we might ought to respond to those things. So Esther chapter 1 you want to join me there, we'll look at it together. We'll read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll look at some things together in the time we have left. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people, present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, Vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded... Mahuman, Viztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zither, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of Asheras, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the next men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Memican, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? But she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done all the has done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, "...causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may be repealed that Vashti is never again to come into the presence of the king. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the kings did as Mimikin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the king of his people. Jesus, thank you for the truth of your word, that you, the living word, bring it to light in our hearts by the power of your spirit. And as we join together and we study this, we ask for you to open our eyes to see the truth that you would have. Lord, give us illumination into this time of the Persians and see how it relates to our day and see how we should relate to the world that you've placed us in to live as your disciples, your people, in this place. Oh, Lord, we trust you will help us in this. We need your help, and we look forward to it. And we give you praise Amen. in advance in the name of Jesus. Amen. So the first two chapters, we've just read the first chapter, really set the stage for the rest of the story. It, It tells us who the characters are. It doesn't really reveal much about the plot, but it sets the stage for the downfall of one queen and the raising up of another queen. And the story begins, like most of the Old Testament books of history, with the phrase now, in these days. To let them know that it's historical, the book is both a book of literature and a book of history. And the first chapter sets the picture before us of the Persian Empire, the great world empire of the day, full of majesty and power. It was godless, it was pagan, was ruled by a man named King Ahasuerus. The Greek name in your translation may have the name Xerxes, son of the great leader Darius, grandson of Cyrus, who was the one that gave the decree that allowed the Jews to to go back to Judea, to Jerusalem, after the exile. And the kingdom represents the very best of human effort and human wisdom. And then in the next week, we'll look at chapter 2 and how God has placed His people, the Jews, there to live under the authority of this world empire, under a godless king, as exiles without many rights, without a home. But today we look at the Persian Empire. And you'll probably hear me say Persian Empire, maybe World Empire, or just Empire, but as I go through, just realize I'm talking about the same thing, because the principles are the same regardless of century, regardless of history. That every world empire is one that's opposed to God and the principles of His Word. It often applauds and cheers sin and sinners. They operate under human wisdom and seek to please themselves. And Jesus acknowledged in John 17 that God's people are physically in this world, but we should never be a part of its values. And so when we look at the traits of the Persian Empire, we can see traits that are common to the world we live in today. There's an outline that you can fill in. There's probably a six or seven things, characteristics about this world empire. And the first thing we see is that the world empire is unavoidable. The story tells us that Ahasuerus ruled over most of what the known world was that day, except their rival, Greece. The size is seen in verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who ruled from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. A description of vast size, if you were to look at a map today, it would cover several different Countries. And the idea the author wants us to understand is that this is a large kingdom with a powerful king, and it's well organized. And if you were alive in that day, there was a pretty good chance that you lived in the Persian Empire because they controlled most of the world. And unless you lived on one of the borders, or if you traveled extensively, you probably lived your entire life within the The borders of this empire. And for God's people, the Jews being captives there in exile, they had no other alternative. It was where they lived. As Christians today, we live in a world (laughs) that it's impossible to escape, except through death when we go to glory or when Jesus returns. We live according to the laws and customs of the world. We deal with a sinfulness that tempts us and torments us. And the key question that we have as believers is how in the world can God's people live like God's people are supposed to in the midst of this environment? It would be nice if you could run away and hide, but that's not really a possibility. And we know we shouldn't give in and be like everyone else, so how are we... To live, as Peter says, holy and godly lives in the midst of this present age. So the kingdom of this world is inescapable, but it's also very powerful. If you read these verses, the first three verses, you get the picture of power, big time power, a world power. You have a king in a fortress on a throne with all of his powerful people gathered around him. Verse 2 says that Ahasuerus sat on his throne in Susa the citadel. It was the third year of his reign, and he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Army of the Medes and Persians and nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So the guest list for this six-month-long banquet were those people who were in power and very close to the king the ones who made the rules and gave the orders in society. And they're gathered in this citadel, a fortress center of government that's set high above the city, surrounded by walls. Imagine if you, if you were to travel to Washington, D.C., and you'd have like the White House, Congress, Supreme Court, Pentagon, everything there on one high hill, surrounded by a thick wall was the center of government. And there in the very center at the highest point was King Ahasuerus on a very majestic throne. Everything says that this is a powerful kingdom that seems to be invincible. But we know because we've seen time and time again that every empire, no matter how strong, eventually falls. During that time, they may show their might, try to flex their muscles by conquering other nations, by influencing others, and causing fear and worry. But every one of those kingdoms, every kingdom, is under the authority of God. In Job chapter 12, verse 23, speaking about God himself, it says, God, He makes nations great, and He destroys them, He enlarges nations and He leads them away. So the world is powerful. And with that power, it's also impressive. Verses 4 through 8 just paint a picture that is meant to catch the attention of our eyes and our imagination and cause our mouths to say, wow, we've all been in those places. We've seen buildings or houses or cities, and we're like, just wow, we're very impressed. And verse 4 Listen to the words when he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. You want riches? Persia's got it. The splendor and pomp impress you? Oh, you better go to Persia. That court's something to see. Royal glory and greatness? Yep, they got it too. The best of the empire was on display for six long months. And then they followed that up by a seven-day banquet to invite everybody to. So they had a private gathering of all the leaders then a seven-day public display. And verses 6 through 8 just describe this scene in very detail to show the extravagance. Verse 6 just tells us there were white cotton curtains, violet hangings, cords of fine linen, and purple attached to silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver. Anybody here have a gold couch? Silver couch. Mosaic pavement of periphery, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And the generosity of the king, the hospitality of the king, the decorating style of the king, all painted a picture that said, this kingdom has it and the people that were there must have thought to themselves, wow, what a place, what a party, what a king. What do I need to do to be a part of this? How do I stay on the king's good side? He's got plenty of alcohol to go around. He tells us to drink all we want, and it's by his order. And oftentimes the world leaves us thinking, leaves people thinking, there could be nothing better than this paints a picture of greatness and extravagance, but everything the world offers is superficial and temporary. Even so, human nature, our human nature, is strangely drawn to it again and again. We find ourselves going back when we know we shouldn't. Because the world is also appealing. Verses 4 through 9 the glory, the power, the glamour, the generosity of the world empire leaves people saying, I want some of that. It's our human nature, our flesh calling out because the world offers the promise of great reward, money, power, fame, satisfaction, pleasure. Now most commentators associate this extravagant banquet with a war council that the Greek historian Herodotus tells us was called to plan an attack against the Greeks, their enemy. If you read on in history, you find out that that attack was a failed plan. But it was the king showing off his splendor and offering, if you would, the idea that if you support the empire, you can share in the wealth. One commentator, Karen Job, said it this way, King Ahasuerus showed his wealth to show that he could make good on his promises and reward those who would rally to support him. So imagine you're in a modern film where the, the pirate captain opens up the chest with all the gold coins and says, this is for you, mates, if you follow me. Or, you know, you have the mob boss who opens a suitcase full of cash and he says, you know, I'm going to make you an offer. Not one you can't refuse, but I'm going to make you an offer and this money is going to be yours. He's offering them a piece of the action, a little piece of His kingdom to be their kingdom if they would follow Him. See, the world constantly offers things that are too good to be true. The world always over-promises and under-delivers. In our human nature, even though we may taste a little bit, we're always going to want more. It's why John in his old age, the disciple warns us, don't love the world or the things of the world. See, the world empire is enticing. And because it's enticing, it's even more dangerous. You see it in verses 9 through 11. We have the setting here of two banquets. Actually, there's, there's three banquets that go on. A six-month banquet, a seven-day banquet, and then Queen Vashti is holding a banquet of her own ladies only while King Ahasuerus has a male only banquet. And on the last day of the king's banquet the story indicates that the king's drunk. And power and drunkenness really drunkenness and anything never go together but if you put power and drunkenness together you're not going to get a good result. And combine that with the historical record of the unpredictability of the king and his decision making and a room full of other drunken men. And what do you have? A recipe for for trouble. And on the last day of that feast, after the king had showed off everything that was great about Persia, he decides he's going to show off his most prized possession, the queen. So he gives orders to His seven eunuchs, verse 11, tells us to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now that name, Vashti, people have wondered what it means or where it comes from and most agree that it means either best or desired one. And the writer tells us that she's lovely to look at and beautiful. And one commentator said, no matter what the intentions were, it was obvious that the king's goal was to objectify his queen. I've shown you everything pretty in my kingdom. Now I'm going to show you my most beautiful possession, my queen. To show off her looks. Jewish commentators and Christian commentators debate back and forth what it meant to be for her to appear in her crown, that meant she was appear dressed or undressed. The best we have to offer is that the writer doesn't tell us the reason. We just know that the king invited her to come, ordered her to come to show off her looks and to exercise his authority as the king. Writer Christopher Ash says this, The world cares nothing about individual lives. It only seeks to please self, and if left unchecked, it will do so at any price. The world we live in is a dangerous place. You can't expect justice to be served, fairness to be offered. It's a place where God's people always must be on guard remember in their mind that they have a defender, they have a protector, there is a champion who is fighting on their side. We have the most powerful man in the world at the time, requesting the presence of his queen. And we're introduced to the first of many ironies in the story, where we think one thing should happen, and something happens that's completely opposite. And we find that those aren't accidents, that they're God's working in history. So we expect, okay, the queen's probably going to come because the king said so. But what we read is a very different account. And Vashti's response is almost laughable. Kingdom of the world is laughable. What could be so funny? Well, the king, the mighty king Ahasuerus, sends for his queen Vashti, and what does Vashti say? No. I'm not coming. It's unexpected. The king who rules over everything, who can speak in the law, a law of the Persians and Medes, and it's so in all the kingdom, is refused by one woman. Not just any woman, his wife, his queen. It seems ironic and maybe a little bit comedic to us, but to the king, oh my goodness. He's enraged, and the scripture says he's burning with anger. Now why Vashti says no is anybody's guess. Many people have written many pages of thought about why she might have refused. What could have possibly been going on? One author named Fox just simply says it this way, Vashti said no, and that's all that matters to the storyteller. Why? Because the issue is not Vashti's refusal, it's the pride of the king. The king's pride is severely bruised because He's given this decree in front of all these men, and the queen said no. Second bit of irony is this all-powerful king doesn't know what to do. So he does what he always does because he doesn't know what to do. He asks his advisors, what's to be done to Vashti? And he asks these wise men of the empire, men who, the Scriptures say, knew the times. They followed the stars. They were close to the king. They were experts in the law, but it's really questionable whether they really did understand the times. And one of those men, Memekin, maybe on his own or speaking on behalf of the group, comes up with a plan, a plan that would soothe the king's wounded pride and also please the other officials. He takes a small individual problem and makes it an empire-wide problem problem and says, we need to put a stop to this before it spreads, because soon otherwise we'll hear about what Vashti did, and they're going to find contempt for their husbands. So his plan is to issue a royal order according to the law of the Persians and the Medes that Vashti would be banned from the king's presence, which is funny because they're banning her from something that she didn't want to do anyway. But then also, she loses her position as queen. So we're going to banish the queen, and we're going to replace the queen. And the text tells us, with one who is better than she. And you can read into that a woman who would be more compliant. And the goal of Mimikin's grand plan is that all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now let me pause here. If you're looking for how to read this story, you have to remember that the author is not writing about marriage. He's not writing about godly submission of a man to a woman. So this is not a text to run to to say, okay, look, see what happens when women get out of line, they don't listen to their husbands. It's not that kind of text. No, it's a text to show us that the world empire, the world makes demands oftentimes that are for their own personal gain and against the best interest of others. He was more interested in pleasing himself and impressing those around him than doing what was best for his wife. So he makes this, Mimikin makes this law, everyone's pleased, and they write it into the law of the Persians and the Medes. The law of the Persians and the Medes was for every person. It would stand for all times, and it could not be repealed. There was no Supreme Court that could overturn these laws. The king would speak it. They would write it into law. They would translate it in all the different languages, and they would make sure everybody got a copy of it. Another funny part of this story, as you think about this, this incident happens inside of the palace. There's only the officials there. There's only the king, and they request Vashti, but all of a sudden they're going to send out this decree to the whole land to let them know what they shouldn't do. But in doing so, they also inform them of the embarrassing incident with their king. So maybe some people out in the the frontier areas would have never heard about Vashti's refusal to come, but no, now they read about it and they find a law about it at the same time and fox just continues that to tell us that as we move deeper into the tale that reports events of seriousness we it brings us to a we bring with us the knowledge that not everything and everyone is to be taken with full seriousness that this kingdom appears to be great appears to be glorious but it may not be all that it seems to be fact the tells us We read in Psalm 2 that God himself laughs at the world and the kingdom of this world. Psalm 2, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Why does he laugh? He laughs because he knows that any world system, any world power won't last, and a day of judgment is coming, and only those who are righteous in Christ will be saved. And as impressive and as invincible as any world empire seems, it will never last. But there is a kingdom that stands above all. It's a kingdom that's ruled by a king who doesn't judge arbitrarily. is not susceptible to the temptations of alcohol or the flesh, but who has perfect character and who's worthy of holding absolute power. One the Bible calls Jesus, who is our King of kings and Lord of lords. So while we look at those characteristics of the worldly kingdom, we must remember that God's kingdom is eternal, all-powerful, and victorious. And when we speak of this kingdom above all kingdoms, we have to understand, as one person wrote, that it's the everlasting realm where God is sovereign and Jesus Christ rules forever. It expands over all creation. It originates in the heavens. It follows God's rules, not man's rules. And the psalm writer gives testimony to it. Look at Psalm one hundred three nineteen. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. And then a few chapters later, Psalm one forty five verse, verse thirteen. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and kind in all His works. And everything that's visible, everything that's physical, is under the control of a God who is invisible, spiritual, and all-powerful. And one day, that kingdom will See final victory, Revelation 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Until that moment, God's people still live in a broken, sinful world. We have the kingdom of God in our hearts. We have a responsibility to invite others to join that kingdom, and we wait with anticipation and excitement for the kingdom to come in its fullness. But in the meantime, God's people live as a purposeful minority in a world that appears to be all-powerful and continues to be exciting weeks to come, and I hope you're a part of our our gathering. We're going to see God's ever-present hand at work all through this story. Really all through history. We'll take time to celebrate God's faithfulness to all His promises. But as we close today, I just want to ask you to reflect on a couple of questions. And the first one is this. where, Where have I doubted God's hand at work? Where have I doubted that God is working? Just be honest and admit it to Him. And then commit to trust Him. That's one question. And we're going to take time in the in the quiet with some instruments playing in a minute to reflect on these. The second, am I living with purpose? Or maybe another way to say it, does my life reflect Jesus and His kingdom? Am I just kind of bouncing around through life, going through the motions, or am I living with purpose? Or maybe find that love for the world is all you have. You don't really think much about God. Faith in Jesus is something that maybe is new to you and I just invite you in, in your heart to consider Jesus the Savior today. The one who sits on the throne and rules over all. The one who died to be your Savior and lives forever. The resurrected one. Just by simple trust, you can place your faith in Him. This morning, we're going to start doing things a little different. I'm just going to ask Jackie to come up. She's just going to play quietly on the piano. It's a time for for you to respond. To listen to God as He speaks. You don't have a psalm to sing. Any words on the screen to, to look at? You're free to remain seated there where you are. You're welcome to stand. You can kneel. You can come to the front. The most important thing I'd ask is during this time, you would let God speak to you, your heart, to your mind, and then respond. I'll be at the front if you need to speak to someone or pray with someone. I, I would welcome you to come. But I'm going to pray, and after we pray, Jackie's going to play. And I just invite you to reflect on these things. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are so very thankful for your presence here with us. We thank you. We thank you that your word is timeless. It stands the test of time. God, sometimes our task is to look at the brokenness of this world to be reminded of the truth that while we live in it, it's not our home. And that we have a responsibility believers to push back the darkness. We have a calling to live lives that are holy and godly, to be set apart from the world, while we're in the world, to not participate in the things of we do. So, Lord, show us where we have maybe loved the world more than we should. Show us where we've doubted your hand, at work. Help us to see whether or not we're living with purpose and then give us the next step to step out and be in purpose. Or if you've never received your Son, Jesus, Lord, help us to consider the free offer of salvation today. We love you, O Lord. We pray in that name. the Lord speaks and we commit ourselves to his plan for us that we will find his goodness we'll find satisfaction in him we'll find that he is willing to give us exactly what we need our worship team is going to come up and lead us in a closing song and while they're coming I just want to remind you that it, to take opportunity if you would like to get some free tickets for the Jesus Revolution to sign up on the sign up sheet that's on that table and I'm um, want to thank you for worshiping with us here at Cross Timber. I would invite you to stand. And as we sing this last song, let it just be our voice of praise, our declaration to the Lord. And then when our song is finished, you're dismissed. So let's sing together.